What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 23, another great prime number. I hope that if you're listening to this episode around the time it comes out, you're having a great spooky season. And I hope if you're coming to this episode a few months or even years later, then you're having a really nice whatever season it is for you. This episode is all about Americans knitting for victory in World War I and II. Knitting in the 20th century! Things I've never really gotten into before! An exciting tale of needlework awaits. And as always, images of what I discussed today are on the So What social media pages. I think you're probably saying those words with me at this point. A fun thing, though, is the images this week are a mix of extant objects and images and advertising from the period. So fun! Anyways, on to the episode. So, knitting for victory. It happened all over in many different countries during the two world wars, but I'm focusing on the knitting that happened in the U.S. because one, I am American, and two, it's the knitting situation I know most about. I know most of it thanks to this woman named Paula Becker. I have no idea who she is, but she wrote two fabulous articles about knitting during the world wars on HistoryLink.com like 16 years ago, and I used that a lot for this episode, so shout out to her! Okay, let's start with World War I, obviously. So basically, during World War I, the U.S. government asked Americans of all ages to knit things for soldiers at home and abroad. Americans were asked to stitch wool socks, jumpers, sweaters, gloves, and other warm garments. That volunteer effort was organized by the American Red Cross, and in the one year and seven months the U.S. was actually involved in the war, Americans produced millions of knitted items for the war effort. In the summer of 1917, the Red Cross announced the soldiers immediately needed one and a half million knitted wristlets, mufflers, jumpers, and pairs of socks. That's one and a half million each. One and a half million wristlets! I don't even know what wristlets are! Three million socks! That's a lot of socks. And a lot of knitted stuff in general. Now, I'm going to come at you with some really mind-blowing numbers right now. According to Rebecca Kale, who did a PhD on American women's volunteer work during the First and Second World Wars, the Red Cross gathered 23,328,831 finished knit items for servicemen by American Red Cross volunteers. That is like a mind-boggling amount of knit things. The Red Cross determined that the cost of yarn for a full kit of knitted goods for one sailor was $3, which is so much considering that it was estimated that one hour of hand knitting equaled 15 cents. So the estimated value of the Red Cross knitted donations calculated using the estimated hourly wage and cost of materials is, get ready for it, $41,858,274.72. That's in Edwardian money. That 1917 money in 2020 money is, uh, get ready for it because it's crazy, $849,978,050.68. I am shooketh. That is almost a billion dollars worth of knit stuff. Let it be known, though, that this is not me making these numbers up. These were calculated by Rebecca Kale, who did all of the math for this for her PhD, which I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, that's crazy. And enough of the money stuff. Let's get back to the objects. 
the millions and millions of socks were the most important things. The soldiers' boots were fairly water-repellent, but they ripped at the seams really easily, so there were millions upon millions of cold, wet feet and toesies that needed to be kept warm. And that was just the 1917 boot edition. In 1918, boots had an extra sole, but no insulation, so once more, freezing feet, so cold. So yes, socks, so many pairs, like infinite pairs of socks going on. But not just socks. Soldiers also needed wool hats and vests and chest covers and fingerless gloves and things called stump socks to cover amputated limbs. The Red Cross published patterns and sold yarn, as well as collecting finished goods and shipping them to Europe. Weirdly enough, the motto for all the Knitting for Victory stuff was Knit for Sammy! Exclamation point, which I think sounds really cute. So it turns out that American soldiers were called Sammies, which was short for Uncle Sam, hence Knit for Sammy. But I am low-key out here wishing the motto was Knit for Doughboy, because Doughboy was a nickname for an American soldier, which dates to the Civil War, and I find that so funny. Union soldiers wore brass buttons on the coats of their uniforms, and they resembled boiled dumplings called Doughboys. That is clearly so delightful to me, I will be tickled by that forever. So knitting for victory was a very social activity. Men and women of all ages stitched in school, in religious groups, at work, on public transportation, and just about everywhere. There are images of tiny little boys knitting while standing in the halls of schools, all dressed up in their tiny ties and the cutest little knickerbockers. It is so charming, so wholesome. People got into knitting, clearly, and some daring knitters followed what the Delineator magazine suggested, knitting two socks at once, one inside of the other. Honestly, wish I knew how to do that. And also, a brief note about the actual appearance of these World War I socks. They were, as you can imagine, pretty plain. They were made of plain-colored wool in, like, gray and black and forest green and olive green and all of like the drabbest colors you can think of because why would you need exciting colors for socks anyway when you're in the middle of a war they were purely practical and it was cheapest and easiest to produce boring wool colors so yes it was not an aesthetic thrill there were occasionally some striped examples which is pretty cool in comparison though the people who couldn't knit were encouraged to purchase yarn for those who could one of my favorite funds I've read about was the Old Ladies Knitting Fund in Seattle, Washington. That name does not beat around the bush. The fund was first established because there were little old ladies who were anxious to knit for the Red Cross, but couldn't afford to pay 75 cents for the initial allotment of the yarn. So the fund was started, and now those elderly cuties were able to pick up yarn for free and then knit up a storm. Also, also <laughs> about this, the longshoremen of the Great Northern Docks were the first group to donate to the Old Ladies Knitting Fund, and I am obsessed with that because old women and longshoremen are the duo I didn't know I so desperately needed. There were so many different groups of knitters who got together to stitch, which I truly, truly love to see. School children, men and women from all different racial and ethnic and religious backgrounds, etc., etc. Across the country, African-American women created organizations to knit exclusively for black soldiers and to provide them with encouraging letters and care packages. Black soldiers were, sadly unsurprisingly, really discriminated against, so these care packages full of knit goods and encouraging words were really important in the face of straight-up racism. Not that the goodness of knit goods makes up for the badness of racism and discrimination. It does not, obviously. But the knit stuff of World War I was a good time and was indeed very useful. There are some really good World War I-era knitting songs and poems, and they are such a wholesome delight, so I'm going to read you two of them. Here they are. 
Johnny, get your yarn, get your yarn, get your yarn. Knitting has a charm, has a charm, has a charm. See us knitting two by two. Boys in Seattle like it too. Hurry every day, don't delay, make it pay. Our laddies must be warm, not forlorn mid the storm. Hear them call from o'er the sea. Make a sweater, please, for me. Over here, everywhere, we are knitting for the boys over there. It's a sock or a sweater, or even better, to do your bit and knit a square. As you can tell, I really wanted to put that to a rhythm. It did not work at all. Anyway, here's the other one. Do you belong to the wool brigade? If not, then come along. Mothers, wives, and maidens make this army strong. Gray wool is our ammunition. Some make it into balls. Pass them to the knitting squad. They will soon use them all. For this is no time to be idle and sit with folded hands. Pick up your knitting whenever you're sitting. A sock soon grows under your hand. Hark! I hear the bugle call. Somebody wants another ball. I really wanted to put these to a beat, and I did try to, like, lightly wrap them to my boyfriend, but that did not work at all, so you'll just have to envision your own rhythm. But yeah, so cute, right? Extremely wholesome and encouraging and fun and flirty and only occasionally arrhythmic. Less wholesome but deeply unsurprising was the very intense propaganda part of the whole patriotic knitting situation. It's inevitable, of course, and those songs were part of that. In addition, the American Red Cross published a booklet called 100 Lies of the Hun, all about lies supposedly told by Germans, and which contained 11 lies about knitting. These included tales of the American Red Cross selling donated knitted items and throwing away socks after being only slightly worn. All of this propaganda was super effective, and it was partially because of this that knitting in public, which I mentioned earlier, became so popular. Karen C.K. Ballard wrote about Knitting for Victory in a blog post for the Center for Knit and Crochet, and she wrote this, quote, Knitting in public became not only acceptable, but expected. It was a patriotic obsession, so much so that towards the end of the war, wool reserves were running low. However, at that time, the need for socks had grown critical. Clean, dry, holeless socks were imperative to prevent trench foot, frostbite, and blisters. Knitters were told to discontinue knitting all other items and to devote all their spare time to knitting socks using any appropriately colored wool they could muster. Magazines published articles about Italian women who had been employed to darn worn socks to help meet the need." End quote. So not only did knitting help those fighting overseas, but also those at home. Helping good right? Propaganda less good, but also necessary for keeping up morale, I guess. I don't know, this isn't a podcast that deals with the nuances of the use of propaganda. What this podcast does deal with, though, is needlework, so let me go over the knitting stitches used to make these World War I knitted goods. This information is thanks to worldwarknits.com, which is literally like the perfect accompaniment to this podcast episode. I'm going to focus on just a few items, because if I looked at all of them, I'd be here all day and therefore so would you. The Red Cross scarves used basic garter stitch, which is just knitting, 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 and no pearl or anything like that, but you could make it fancier if you wanted to using diagonal, single brioche, cardigan, double brioche, or triangle stitches. Fancy, right? The knitted socks were pretty basic with a heel and rib tops and all that good stuff, and sometimes they were ribbed all over. But then there were also hospital bed socks. Those were made without a heel and were designed to be worn by convalescing soldiers. 
Then there were the putty stockings, putty, putty, I'm not sure, which are like leg warmers, which like cute and fun, right? There are also socks, but longer. Those included seaman stockings and trench stockings. Trench stockings were often worn under rubber boots and were heckin' lengthy. And finally, there were mufflers which folded into caps. And there were also so many knit helmet hat things. And along with that, there were knit vests and sweaters and caps and gloves and wristlets and body belts and pillow covers and washcloths and basically everything else you can think of. Most of them were made with just simple knitting stitches, so anyone who knew that one stitch could make stuff. No pearl knowledge necessary. So yeah, that's Knitting for Victory in World War I. It's basically a tale of socks and poems that just about rhyme. The war ended on the 11th of November 1918, and Knitting for Victory ended, right? Wrong. Because there was another big old war just over two decades later. That's right, it's time to shift from Knitting for Victory in World War I to Knitting for Victory in World War II. Knitting for Victory, the sequel. So here we are, back again, knitting for American soldiers abroad. Many of the people who were knitting for victory in World War II did the same thing as children or younger adults in World War I. America entered World War II after Pearl Harbor was bombed on the 7th of December 1941, so the knitting started in earnest then, but before that, Americans were knitting and preparing care packages for those in allied countries in Europe. Those included, quote, bundles for Britain to help besieged Londoners, and the care packages made by groups like the American-French War Relief, Finnish Relief, Polish Women's Relief Committee, and a bit for Belgium. Cross-continental friendship and camaraderie via knit goods. So wholesome, right? So yes, everyone was getting in on knitting again and in a big way. A quote from Time Magazine on the 21st of July, 1940 reads, quote, The men hardly have time to grab their guns before their wives and sweethearts grab their needles and yarn, end quote. It was knitting time, friends and fam. Enthusiasm for patriotic knitting was furthered by the first lady herself, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was often photographed knitting or with her knitting bag in tow. In this war, though, people were like, why should these supplies be knit by hand? Don't we have machines for that? And the answer was yes, but hand knitting cost the military nothing and didn't wear down machines and often lasted longer than machine knit stuff. But also morale. Knitting let people who were on the home front feel like they had an active part in the war effort. And like in the previous war, the American Red Cross oversaw the knitting for victory efforts during World War II. The Red Cross was designated the single clearing agency for all knitting and had priority status for receiving wool. Check out that wool monopoly. In some areas, the Red Cross trained people to spin yarn from wool because it was cheaper than buying wool itself. The Red Cross supplied patterns for sweaters, socks, mufflers, fingerless mittens, toe covers for those wearing casts, stump covers, and other knitted goodies. The items were to be made from olive or navy blue yarn, and each piece had to be completed with a label indicating which chapter of the Red Cross it was from. As you can see, the system was a bit more formalized in World War II than it was in World War I. An item that was made a lot in World War II that wasn't made in the previous war was the 15 to 30 foot long stretch bandage. Those were made with cotton yarn instead of wool and were made in entirely garter stitch. The finished bandages were sterilized and shipped to medical units all over the place. Like in the last war, the number one knitting project in World War II was socks. 
Socks wore out quickly and needed to be changed often. The need for socks was so intense that American prisoners of war unraveled their Red Cross sweaters and re-knit the yarn into socks, using pointed barbed wire as needles. Which, like, ouch and yikes, but clearly the sock need was so, so real. But this time around, machine-knit wool socks supplemented the handmade ones. Karen C.K. Ballard of the Center for Knit and Crochet, who I mentioned earlier, also wrote about knitting for victory in World War II, and the information she shares is really interesting, so I'm going to read it to all of you. Here it is. Quote, During World War II, posters, sheet music, comics, and booklet-slash-magazine images depicting and lauding knitters remained popular, although postcards, poetry, and plays became less popular. At least one movie featured wartime knitters, most notably Mr. Lucky from 1943 with Cary Grant attempting to learn to knit. Additionally, there were sewing patterns produced by all major pattern companies, not only for knitting bags and knitting needle holders, but for ARC, American Red Cross, uniforms, victory dresses, and victory aprons that one could proudly wear to knitting parties. And there were crochet patterns for brooches featuring miniature navy hats, complete with miniature knitting needles, which were sold by Susan Bates through McCall Needlework Magazine, specifically for the purpose of making patriotic brooches. End quote. So yeah, the knitting propaganda we saw in the First World War carried on through the Second World War too, as did the knitting-themed propaganda songs. There is one Canadian song called The Pretty Little Mitt That Kitty Knit, and I'm going to read it all to you because it is wild and hilarious. Here we go. We've been hearing quite a lot of propaganda, and it is such a funny war you must admit. Though there's lots you can't believe, I've the story up my sleeve of the pretty little mitt that kitty knit. With her needles keeping time to Tipperary, she determined she would do her little bit. Some may fight their way to fame, Kitty made it just the same with the pretty little mitt that Kitty knit. She started on a sock, but she kinda lost her nerve. Shock followed sock, for she couldn't make the curve. All tangled up in the red and white and blue, she tried to knit on the back of it a cheery how are you. Then she wrapped it up and sent it to the soldiers, but they found that they had nothing it would fit. Stuffed it down a blinkin' gun, shot it over to the Hun. Oh, the pretty little mitt that Kitty knit. Then the Nazi agent sent it to Der Fuhr. When he looked at it, he nearly threw a fit, for he thought there was a trap or a secret code or map in the pretty little mitt that Kitty knit. So Der Fuhrer summoned all his mighty warlords, but they didn't like the look of it a bit, for they couldn't find the clue to the red and white and blue in the pretty little mitt that Kitty knit. And then Der Fuhrer cried, Never saw the like before. I'd let it ride, but it's such a funny war. Move after move I've been happy to predict. Now I confess that I've missed a guess I'm absolutely licked. Then he packed it with the letter off to Blighty, stating briefly he was quite prepared to quit. Now revered by one and all on the foreign office wall, hangs the pretty little mitt that Kitty knit. And that's it. I am putting the link to the actual song across the So at social media pages because it is very, very 1940s. It's, you know, really jaunty, if nothing else, and it really shows how present knitting propaganda was. So what were World War II knit goods actually like? I again refer to worldwarknits.com, which owns my life and soul at this point. 
We've got caps and earmuffs and cozy balaclavas, which I shouldn't find funny, but absolutely do, because they make the World War II soldier models look like a bit like medieval knights in chainmail. Putting the knit in knight, right? Heh. <laughs> Anyway, we've also got basic World War II sweater vests and V-neck sweater vests and full-on sweaters, or jumpers if you want, either way is good. There are so many different kinds of sweaters one could make. V-neck, turtleneck, round neck, pullover, heavy cardigan. The list goes on and on. And we've got fingerless gloves and mittens and full-on gloves and mittens and scarves in garter or brioche stitch. Such fun. When it comes to socks, it looks like the heelless hospital bed socks from World War I are out. Heeled socks are in, and they are as drab yet cozy looking as ever. And here's something that the World War I knits never had. Patterns for women. People could stitch sweaters and other bits and bobs for gals in the women's land army, in the U.S. or Britain or wherever else, really. So festive and spirited. After World War II ended in 1945, people didn't necessarily put down their knitting needles. They just, very understandably, moved towards brighter colors and bolder prints. Drab olive and navy blue were replaced by argyles in really zany colors. Yay argyle, yay zany colors, yay for post-war life. So that was a whistle-stop tour of knitting for victory in the First and Second World Wars. It's something I really didn't think about or know a lot about before this podcast, so shout out to the pod for broadening my textile horizons as well as yours, hopefully. I find the connection between needlework and patriotism really interesting. The soldiers needed stuff, so it makes sense for those at home to knit for them, but I think patriotic knitting is part of a much larger trend of stitching as a way to show patriotism. The first example that comes to mind when I say that is really obvious. It's Betsy Ross stitching what became the American flag after the Revolutionary War. The second example is less obvious and also not American. It's British flag bunting and its popularity in Britain and beyond. I say that because my embarrassing teenage self had plastic British flag bunting hung in her room for years. But real bunting is made of stitched fabric, and that's the stuff I think is the typical British flag bunting. It's just interesting that this stitched object has come to represent quintessential Britishness. Like when it's summertime and you go into Marks and Spencers and they're selling British strawberries in their own display area, and that area has a bunch of British flag bunting. Maybe that's just me, but I literally remember where I was when I first saw that exact thing. 2013 in Ealing, London. See, that kind of thing just sticks with you. It's just so fascinating that this needleworked thing has become deeply, intimately associated with Britishness. So that connection between patriotism and needlework is not just present in knitting, and not just in the U.S., and not just during wartime. That desire to, like, support your country or represent pride in it using your hands is universal, it seems. And that's so interesting, and something I'm really excited to think more about. I hope you are too, and if you happen to know anything about that, have any thoughts on that, email me at sowhatpodcast at gmail.com. So thanks for joining me on this journey today. Today's episode is the last one of the season where it's just me speaking about something. The last two are interviews. So get excited about that. I personally am very enthused. Like always, thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review So What if you haven't already and if you want to do so. I'd so, huh, get it? Appreciate your support. Also, before I go, my podcast tone is light, but obviously war is very, very bad, and this is not me making light of it. War is bad. Knitting is often good. Now go out and stitch some stories and go donate to the Red Cross or any organization of your choosing. Bye!